0: Welcome to the Delish Guestless Podcast, a deep dive into the lives and work of Hong Kong's crazy food and beverage industry leaders, hosted by The Beat Asia. Today, we sat down with Edgar Sanui, the Director of Culinary Operations and Development of Epicurean Restaurant Groups, leading restaurants and bars in Hong Kong. The Catalan chef is in charge of planning, developing and creating new menus and directions in the group, specifically for leading Spanish tapas eateries Pika Pika and Barba. Edgar joins the delish guest list to tell his story. As we've mentioned before, and we've met a few times, I know that you're a Catalan. Yeah. How does that come in your identity?
1: Well, it it comes in my identity, the fact that, first of all, the language. In Catalonia, we speak Spanish. We also speak Catalan. Um, And I think language really trims our identities very much. Languages tend to to trim the way we communicate. Um, you actually can... can. There are some studies that, you know, people that speaks German, they tend to communicate in a way how the language uh, hmm. makes you... The words you have in the language, the words you don't have. So the language of Catalan trims how I am. Um, and in a culinary side as well, because Spanish food is very regional. I think in this sense it's similar to Italian food or like Chinese food. Hmm. 100 kilometers away from a point, you have a completely different recipe. Or mod- really? One modification, yes. No, even in Catalonia, being such a small place, you have variations of every recipe from a city to another city. The diversity of product you have in Spain is it's massive, mm. similar to what happens in Peru. like Peru is such a small area, but then you have sea level and then you have 3,000-meter level, and at each altitude you have a different source of ingredients. Spain happens... Kind of the same. We have mm. three thousand meters. We have sea level, and that gives you a lot of variety of products. There is a little story if you allow me to explain. I don't know if we sh- I shared it last time. Antonio Duriz which the chef of Mugaritz, a two mission star, he's a he's a rock star. Many many years in Spain on the top top. Is a guy who who likes to question everything. He he went to Madrid Fusion in Manila in a food convention that we went I think six seven years ago. And then so many representatives of the Spanish astronomy were there in mm. the Philippines, and so many people had came from Spain. And then he said, okay, three Spanish chefs, please raise your, raise your hand. So three Spanish chefs raised their hand and say, okay, what is a sofrito? Sofrito is um, it's kind of a Spanish exo sauce
2: Mm-mm-mm.
1: that we use to start dishes. We use that. You put that paste at the beginning. No? And then you from that you do a paella. From there you do a... Uh, still many dishes, but starts for that sofrito that's just been slow-cooked mm. for a long time. At the end, it's like a jam. What is a sofrito? And then one chef say, a sofrito is tomato, garlic, and onion, and olive oil. And the others say, sofrito is tomato, garlic, and onion, and red pepper. <laughs> and the others say, that and paprika. No? <laughs> and then we suddenly have three different sofrito recipes in three Spanish chefs. Um, and then he say, okay, what, let's say, Let's agree on the base, no? Garlic, olive oil, tomato. Let's agree. This is the base. Why this is the base? This is the best combination of flavor mm-hmm. we could find. Option A, option B. This is what grandmothers or great grandmothers a hundred years ago had on hand. So your great grandmother on hand mm. had it, paprika, so she had paprika. <laughs> your one had and that. Then we, ca- everyone, kind of the room agree that. That was done that way because it was what it was available in that moment or what it was bigger production what we had in hand. No? So he used that to question tradition. They call him always, he goes against tradition. He say, I don't go against tradition. I just think in 2023 with the logistics we have, my painting should be much wider mm. than what it was in 2001 where product from Japan would not arrive to Barcelona. If now I can get soy beans from Japan once a week, why I cannot add that into my pantry and yes. into my cooking, no? um, So why am I explaining this? Because to, to show you how even with this story, we see that in Spain, even with 100 kilometers separation, recipes are different depending on what we have on hand. So me being a Catalan, even me being from Lleida, kind of makes the way I cook because mm. the tradition on that city, it's based on what we have on hand, which in the case of Lleida means mushroom, vegetable, poultry, mm. so.
0: Are you contributing your story of being a chef to the traditions that you've followed in Catalan cuisine and your family's history cooking? Is this something that's central to where you are and how you've got to your place as a chef right now? I think r- during my career, yes.
1: Right now with Pica Pica and Barbar, I think I've tried to put less of me and more of what I think mm. is interesting for the market.
0: Mm-hmm. During a time
1: in my career, especially at the very beginning, I think most of chefs are very proud of who they are, and we want to have our own speech, and this is what we want to cook, and we want to make sure everything has a story, storytelling. Now, I think, yes, we need an overall storytelling, and I, I still follow it, but sometimes I just see what people want to eat in Hong Kong, how we can, from all the background we have, what matches into... I think I'm giving more importance now to the guests than to myself mm. in the restaurants, Pica mm-hmm. Pica and Barbara. We go in a bit mainstream, if you allow the word, but at the end it's because we want to, people to feel comfortable. Um, I think during many years, restauranters or chefs have been expecting people to come and listen to what we have to say. <laughs> but myself as a diner... I'm tired of going to listen to people. I just Mm. want to eat and enjoy and listen to my friends on the
0: table, not to the chef, you know. Do you think along the way from the beginning where you started cooking in Spain and then came to Hong Kong, and then you also had some passages in Manila as well, do you think there's been a stress and a mental health struggle about that perfection, the artistic perfection to, you know, reach new heights what is it that's been a challenge to you getting to this point?
1: Yeah, definitely. It's been a challenge. And mm-hmm. yeah, you're you, you, you following that perfection, which it's very personal. Because at the end, what is perfect for me, we're we all seeking different things. So I want perfection on what I'm personally seeking for, what I'm looking for. But that may not be perfect for you. Or someone doing extreme fine dining will say, oh, that would... Why you need to be perfect, you're just doing comfort food. But maybe for me, perfection means to exactly replicate that flavor of my grandmother on that specific recipe. So yes, I, I will say even at some stages of my career I've been kind of obsessed with that. No obsessed. Just looking for that and it was like all or nothing. You getting exactly what you wanted? No, we fail. It's stress to, at the moment, you cannot reach that perfection to start questioning, is it because I'm in the wrong place? Should I change company? Should I mm. do something else? Should I move to another country? Um, I think chefs also, during many years, or many chefs I know, we kind of justify our bad temper or, or things like, oh, because we want it perfect. and mm. Yeah, but we want it perfect. And now I talk by myself, and I talk by many chefs who I see, you want it perfect, but you don't want to be there at 10 p.m., right? And you don't want to be there at 8 in the morning cleaning the vegetables by yourself, right? You want it perfect, but... You want your team to make it perfect, so you mm. arrive there at the service, you go say hi to the clients, and you yes, you want everything perfect, but all the steps that happened before, till the plate, you don't really want to be involved because now you are culinary director, or executive chef. So I think it's a bit of hypocrisy that I found myself in, mm. um, which at the end say, let's find a balance. It doesn't need to be perfect as long as clients are... Happy and what we are giving is true. I kind of accepted a different type
0: of um, outcome on my cuisine. When you have experienced burnout, what have you done to counter those feelings and counter that experience?
1: Mm, Well, I haven't done. I think you learn usually the hard way. Mm. Like you... Are in a restaurant. Things are not perfect, and mm. you always try to find a reason why things are not perfect. With ninety nine percent, you you don't see yourself as part of the reason. So you always see someone else's fault or a scenario fault or whatever, and then you change something, and then maybe you change a guy who you think it's hundred percent his fault because you explain him three times and and you think you're doing the right thing. And five years after, you remember that guy, and then you feel oh, he wasn't that bad actually. Mm. With my experience now, I will be able to manage him and lead him and teach him much better of what I did because his performance was probably uh, part of my fault not being a good, explaining him well what I wanted. No? So I think I learned the hard way, but it wasn't something that exactly happened or I changed by myself. Like the first restaurant I worked in Hong Kong, it was 10 seats. BCN, Bill Street, in front of what well, now is Pizza Project. Mm. Very little place. Me and another another guy and me in the kitchen. And when we I arrived, I saw this the size. Say, how are we gonna pay the bills? How are we gonna make an a PNL profitable with ten seats? No, we need to do a very high volume of people to do tapas. So why don't we change the? Why don't we do less people? We charge more. I think we were charging already 100. Mm-hmm. And we do a tasting menu. We ensure everyone pays the same. And it was me and a guy, no. In that moment, I wanted everything perfect. My English Mm. was horrible. I was not even able to explain what I wanted. The guy was frustrated. I was frustrated with the guy. Nothing was how I wanted. At the end, the results came. The restaurant, I think we opened in April. By August, we were fully booked until October, I think. Wow. Because, you know, sometimes in Hong Kong, people want what they cannot have. (laughs) So they will call, no, we are full. We are full. Okay. I remember. Sometimes they will say, okay, when do you have a table? Mm, 14th of October. Okay, book me for 7, 14th of October. <laughs> and they didn't even know where they're going to be on fourteen of October. They will just book. So we were full like that. Later yeah. we had a problem that on the week we will have half of the bookings were can- canceled because people completely forgot. <laughs> but then we will, anyway, the, the story is uh, we opened that place and I was so frustrated. I didn't enjoy the, the place there because mm-hmm. I was thinking, this guy doesn't understand. I will just focus on from the 10 courses we have the, the source that was wrong. Or the skin of the cyclone pig that wasn't crispy enough. Mm -hmm. Or the prawn that was slightly overcooked. And I will just focus and repeat to myself how I had the right to be very angry because look how bad is that. And now, 11 years after, I think that guy was great. Do you? You know, I think that guy, and and I think sometimes I feel like I wish I would be running a 10 seal restaurant now. Going there, and in that moment, I feel so miserable. Like, well, only ten seats. I want to have something bigger. So again, this my own reflection, trim myself. Mm-hmm. My own reflection of yourself noticing, like, you know, it wasn't that bad. Maybe I wasn't an idiot.
0: You've spoken to me about a mental health struggle, about that level of perfection that really took you down and gave you stress. Would you mind sharing? About that yeah. Story? Um,
1: so I was in BCN. As I say, small Mm. restaurant where 90% of my worries were cooking Mm. and make sure that recipe, that texture of the sauce was exactly the one I had in my mind and everything. Okay. Now I joined Maximal Concepts, which was kind of starting in that moment. I think Maximal Concepts was two years old in that moment when I joined them. We wanted to open a Spanish restaurant. But that company had many projects in line and the Spanish restaurant couldn't happen because we couldn't find the right location for it. So in the meantime, uh, they asked me to do, to start doing, okay, let's put the Spanish on hold, help us to open this one, mm. help us to open. At the end, I'm I'm a very um, organized person and setting up a kitchen is not a different Chinese than Japanese than you know, making us uh, a process how we order, how we receive, how we dream, how we clean. I can do the rosters. I can order the ingredients. I can tell you if a chocolate is good or not. So, mm-hmm. so I, 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 th- I have things to add into the plate, into any type of restaurant. So I joined Maximal. And then Maximal was booming. And at the end, one day, Malcolm, who is one of the founders, Malcolm, Matt, and Sean, Malcolm tell me, look, the Spanish restaurant is getting delayed. Are you okay helping us to open other restaurants? Those other restaurants were Mod32, Limewood, Stockton, Fish and Meat, Blue Butcher. Uh, So they are not only restaurants. They were landmarks in those times in Hong Kong, like Mod 32. We were talking about opening in that moment. Now Mod Mod 32 is in Hong Kong, is in Vegas, is in Bangkok, is in London. Um, So Limewood, it's been very busy. Brick House, you know, all these kind of places. So they told me to do all that, Stockton and all this night. And to me, it was like a new wall as well. Always opening things. Maximal Concepts people was very cool. The team was very, very cool. I always felt on those brainstorms we will do I was like the less talented in the room. So you know, when you are in a in a meeting and everyone is throwing ideas and say, Fuck, these guys are so talented and everything. So and then after the meetings, they will say, Okay, let's go for a drink and let So that led to kind of a bubble of going out, drinking, partying. Mm-hmm. Then everyone tomorrow we will finish but par- we will Close Stockton at five in the morning or four in the morning. And then nine in the morning, we have a meeting all in the office, and everybody will be there. And everybody was pushing. Was like we were all pushing, 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 pushing. But, and mentally, I was loving it. But physically, my body, when they say no more, I remember one day being at Brick House, having a, I wasn't even drinking alcohol, I was having a, a water waiting for some friends. And then pressure on my chest, thinking I was having a heart attack. Queen's Mary Hospital. And I was like, I'm having a heart attack. Like like a knife in the middle of my chest. Mm. And then Queen's Mary Hospital. They say, you're fine, sir. You, you have nothing. Okay. No problem. Then I think two months after, I think that was in Mott. Or I think it was in Limewood. Middle of the service, Sunday, Limewood. Taking orders. Again. Knife in the middle of the chest. Wow. Taxi, Queen's Mary. Really? And then I told them, it's the second time. You've got to check better <laughs> because... And then they say, okay, we give you time to a cardiologist. And my, 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 uncle, my family in Spain, I have a couple of doctors. They told me, maybe what you want to see is a psychologist. And I was like, what? <laughs> I never, you know, I never had mm-hmm. depression problems. I never had anything. I'm living my best life here. Like, I'm so happy. No, no, you're you going to take... And yeah, yeah, I went to see a... a a psychologist, and they told me what you have is a panic attack and what you're having is classic anxiety in the book. So what you have to do is to slow down. I was like, wow. To me, that was a a shock. And then I struggled for a few months. I was trying to prove to the doctors, to everyone, that they were wrong. No, 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 I don't Mm -hmm. have anxiety. I I really have some problem in my heart. I will go to a stomach doctor. I will go to a cardiologist. I will go to everyone until someone tells me, yes, everything you are feeling is real. But it wasn't, and it was all stress. It's very funny. I learned a lot of stress in the past years. I'm still learning, um, but it's crazy because really all those symptoms you feel them like real. You really feel it. You feel your your heart really accelerates and makes some beats super strong. And in me, I felt I was dying. Like fuck, I'm dying here now in the in Langleyvon. Jeez. So. Um, that was... Then in that moment, I felt it was no way to change that. Mm. Stay in Hong Kong. You're working in the cool group with the cool kids of the F&B in Hong Kong in that moment. Black Sheep was starting. Mm-hmm. They had only Boqueria in that moment. Pirata didn't even exist. Uh, it was Maximal. Maximal yeah. and Black Sheep, they both starting. So I say, what am I going to do now? I'm going to go work. Where, where I go? I go work TST somewhere and when people <laughs> ask me to come center for a drink, I say, no. <laughs> what do I do? And then... <coughs> sorry. I had... This very cool group in Manila Mm -hmm. called La Lola, very cool guys, three guys from Barcelona who were smashing it there, Mm -hmm. with La Lola, with Rambla, with uh, Las Flores. So one day I told them, look, if you ever have something in the Philippines interesting, let me know, maybe I'd like to come. And Sergi, one of them, say, okay, you know what? We want to grow, and why don't you come as a corporate chef, and we open more Spanish restaurants. By then, I have learned a lot on opening, on restaurant openings. After Mod and and all those places. So, say, okay, let me go to the Philippines. And to me, it was like a mix of two things. First, I thought the Philippines and these guys were very cool. And second, it was like my gateway of this. I thought it was going to be more relaxed than Hong Kong. Mm. But then in the Philippines, I realized the problem was not Hong Kong, it was my, my approach. So, but very quickly, say, look, I'm in Manila now. I'm finishing working. I'm going home. I'm cooking a salad. Tomorrow morning I'm going running, and after that I'm going to work. Why I don't do, why I don't do that in Hong Kong?
0: Mm. You
1: know, so I say, what is stopping me to do that in Hong Kong? Nothing, actually. <laughs> um, so that was my first revelation. That was when I realized why I don't come back, because as a chef, the, the, the resources you have in Hong Kong are much bigger than the resources you have in the Philippines at this moment, starting by the amount of guests you have, mm. the access... Manila is amazing, and, and working Filip- with Filipinos is amazing. They are the most friendly, you know, super cool. But they have the logistics issue. Maybe your guests are in Makati. Maybe your restaurant is, is in BGC. So I always, when I was in Manila already, I thought, mm, my approach to Hong Kong was wrong. I should have done it better. But now, okay, lesson learned. And together with that, I had a talk with Sherman Tang, who's the owner of Epicurean, very experienced people in the f F&B industry in Hong Kong. Um, he's been doing this for, for many, many years. And I spoke with him a couple of times. And how to put this? When I was in Maximal, Maximal, it's, it was very focused on the story of things. Like Mod32, it's called Mod32 because on the number 32nd of Mod Street in New York was registered the first Chinese grocery and today, it's considered the starting of Chinatown. Wow. But then when I met Sherman, Sherman is a older person, more old school. Mm. And what he's worried about is good service and good food. You know, he has that kind of approach. Like He always say, if our food is good, it's priced properly, and our service is good, restaurants do good. So. And for me, this really reminds me of Spain. Because in Spain... We, restaurants don't have names that evokes (laughs) streets of 30, no, you go to that place because that omelette there is the best one. That's very simple and very, uh, and that's Spain. And and Sherman always remind me that, remind me, my family approach to F&B, which Mm. is honesty, we don't make up things, we don't bullshit people. If we say this is Grass-fed, this is a grass-fed. This is uh, organic. it's re- So it's, it's a really honest, simple uh, approach, which at the end is very difficult because you have to deliver because there is no story around to distract you. And I really liked it. And then I, I, it just everything made sense. I just thought he was the right person to do a simple tapas bar because he will basically, he knows how to eat very well. So I know he will appreciate simple food, well-executed. I say, okay, let's open one and let's see. Uh, he was very clear on what he wanted. I was very agree on what he wanted. It happened all very naturally, mm. and we opened Pika Pika. Uh, it took us a it took us a while because I came back here, and as I say, Sherman is a more calm person, very mm. experienced. So I'm very I'm very young, emotional, I want things to happen fast, I don't have patience. Mm. By the time I arrived to Hong Kong, till the day we opened Pika Pika, um, we saw a couple of places, and any place I saw, to me, was the best place in the world <laughs> to open Pika Pika. I, I remember we saw a 600 square feet place under the escalator, I said, oh, chairman, this <laughs> one is perfect, you know, <laughs> and he was like, are you sure? I said, yeah, yeah, I guess it, I really was willing to do it. And then he was stopping me down, saying, no, I don't think this is a good location. And then we find another in Sayanpour and no, I don't think it's a good location. He was funny. And to me, I was starting getting frustrated. Like, my God, this guy, are we ever going to open or what is happening? And then one day he say, go see this location. I think, I think we found it. But that was eight months maybe. But
2: mm-hmm. I was sitting
1: in the office. Wow. Or, or, you know, I was sending in, I was thinking, are they gonna fire me? Like the, the, and then he was like, Don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. And then we found the space on Pika Pika. And we felt like that space would really fit what we wanted to do, this kind of street tapas bar. So again, I think it was in the right company hmm. with Sherman, my right moment. I wanted to do these tapas bars that I have never been I have never done before, bigger. Right location, good time for Hong Kong.
2: Hey listeners, I'm your editor Natsuki Arita, coming in to tell you that we are published by TheBeat.Asia, the fastest growing regional publication for F&B news, event coverage, nightlife happenings, culture, and more. So find us at TheBeat.Asia to feel the pulse of Hong Kong and Asia. Now, back to Edgar.
0: Why does uh, Hong Kong need good tapas food? Hmm... I mean, tapas are uh, Spanish food
1: in general. is one of the um, most represented. um, How do I put this? Um, If you look at fine dining, let's say Mm. gastronomy in general, no gastronomy has many areas. Fine dining, then we have the daily uh, comfort food for everyone. But but let's let's look first at Champions League, no? Um, On the fifty best, I think on the top ten at this moment there are three or four Spanish. Wow. Um, I think in the Michelin Guide, at this moment, Spain, if it's not the third one, represented country, mm. I think, and in uh, restaurants with the stars, I think we have there on top. I don't know exactly now because every year may change, but I think you have France, Italy, Japan, Spain, basically. No, are the the, the majority. Uh, when we talk about top, top, top Vanguard, fine dining, no? now. When you look at comfort food street level daily, how many Japanese restaurants we have, how many French restaurants we have, how many Spanish. Mm -hmm. I think Spain is just gaining the representation that it should have had 10 years ago.
0: Makes sense.
1: So We are, when we talk about, but not only that, if you go now... Now all this mo- molecular cuisine is a bit over. Uh, it's totally over. But there are certain techniques that remain, like a siphon. Restaurants don't do molecular cuisine, but I'm sure if you go even to Bea, like Vicky, and all these guys, everyone has a siphon in the kitchen. This siphon was invented in El Bulli. Uh mm. If you do a, a air with lecithin, with soy lecithin, and you do this kind of very thin bubbles to put on top <laughs> of something... This technique is coming from Albuye. When you do the sous that we call now the runner, mm. majority of the development on sous machine was done in El de and 17 years ago. Mm. So the impact that Spanish fine dining astronomy had worldwide today in most of fine dining restaurants in the world, it's unknown by other cuisines. You can have it from French in the sense that if you want to consider everyone who does a mayonnaise, it's coming from, you know, the mother sauce from France or boulabés or, or, uh, if you want to use as a base. So France has a lot of impact. But I don't think Italian restaurants had ever had, for example, an impact. Techniques mm. developed in Italian restaurants worldwide had an impact in many other types of cuisines. It didn't happen. So so that's why I think Spain, when we go to the top, it's, it's a reference. It's still affecting, or no, not affecting, um... This still has an impact on the tools and some of the techniques found today in French restaurants, Italian restaurants, uh, Japanese uh, modern restaurants. So it was a matter of time that the daily comfort food will arrive to the
0: streets worldwide. And boom, Pika Pika and Barba.
1: Well, no, Pika Pika and Barba and and many many more, and Chueca and and La Paloma, and there are many, there are many. And before Boqueria and José Andrés in America, Mm. there are many, many uh, examples of... So that's the first thing. I think Spanish gastronomy at its best has an impact on worldwide gastronomy, of course. But then also if you look at the tapas itself, because all those guys I'm mentioning now, I'll say they can rock none of them were doing tapas. They were just doing avant-garde, forward-thinking, cooking, using Mediterranean ingredients. But today, if you look at the way of eating tapas, it fits really Hong Kong or India or all this kind of food where... On the French serving, for example, you will go to a French restaurant, call it from bistro, street level to... Uh, caprice, three stars, four seasons. No? The sequence is very similar, and it's individual. Like you start with with your ramos bouche, and then you will have your entrée, and then you will have your first course and your second course, and everything is individual. And your attention, if you sit on a table and you imagine yourself sitting on a table looking at your plate, your 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 face is uh, facing down, looking at your plate. No, which I always find it, it's kind of. The, the chef wants the attention on on him, because no? because he's there. <laughs> it's like you're looking at at the chef, and and the chef will tell the waiter, "I want you to put the plate in this direction because I want the." It's really egocentric, honestly. Mm. No? This kind of of dining experience, which nothing wrong with it. it, is an artist, willing people to listen on what he has to say. When we go to tapas, it's very similar experience than what you have in dim sum very similar experience when you have in an Indian restaurant with the curries and, the, mm-hmm. and, and all the food on, on the center of the table. When food is in the center of the table, automatically you, you lay your face up because mm. food is there. It force an interaction because I have to serve you, or you have to serve me, or I have to ask you, do you want one more? So it becomes a social experience where ego doesn't play a role because when I go pick pick pika I don't want anyone to talk or look how the chef played that. No, you go to Pika Pika to talk with the person who's in front of you. It's a completely different experience. And I think that's why it has a place in nowadays society, because people lack communication time. People is most of the time on their phones. And having a dining experience where your attention can be in the people with you on the table, not on the chef... It's very good. Mm. And it also, I, I say, I think, helps friendships, helps uh, social interaction, helps everyone sitting on a table saying, okay, who's having the last one? Come on, grab that one. Which you don't have this type of experience if you go to a single-plated tasting menu. Mm. It's a completely different thing. No? So, anyway, I think that's why tapas has always a place in any city in the world because it's a social experience where... Yes, you have good food. Yes, you enjoy. You have a variety of dishes. But at the end, the most important thing in this is who is with you on the table um, rather than the chef or the background of the chef or any of those.
0: Gotcha. Moving on to our rapid fire questions, Edgar. Okay. I'll try
1: my best to fire rapid.
0: You have less than 30 seconds to come up with a few words to answer each question. Are you ready? Yes. Yes. What's an underrated Spanish dish you'd like more people to know of? Hilda, choose one thing that you think should be banned in all restaurants and one thing that must be compulsory in restaurants. Explain your choices. Um, ban in all restaurants. Okay, let me start by
1: compulsory. <laughs> I think compulsory in, in all restaurants should be that whatever the menu states as organic or farm to table or must be true. Mm. I think there is no control. On what restaurants say on their menus to be true, there is no control, there are no consequences. And many place, many times I go to restaurants and such things as called as Wagyu or things, they are not such and there are no consequences. And ban? Um, ban should be people being able to don't show. Good.
0: After a booking. You've traveled around and lived in different countries in the world. Please rank the countries you've lived and worked in from best to worst. Ooh, this is very
1: difficult. Because best is Hong Kong. That's why I'm here. Yeah. Worst. Oh uh, no, I enjoy them all. Um, I'll take that answer. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't think I've I've enjoyed them all. I think. I mean what I'm going to say, is Spain is the worst, it's, it's an amazing place, or Philippines is an amazing place, or Japan is an amazing place.
0: I think it depends on which parameter you want to focus on. Hmm. What is the most abnormal thing you've eaten that you feel most people haven't? How was it?
1: Oh, I hated it. This, this is easy one. This is the balut in the Philippines. I hate it. I hate that egg. Seriously, I don't understand. It has feathers and bones, and it's disgusting. Is there any... Sorry, with all my respect, if I offend uh-huh. any Filipino. <laughs> I don't know. Sorry, That one I will say. This is... In my mouth, what it caused me the most discomfort. I put that in my mouth. I didn't like it. Sorry, I didn't mean to offend anybody. Uh, but I will say, in terms of aroma, is the stinky tofu in Kok. I like stinky tofu. I, I haven't tried it. If they could remove the smell, I could try it. But you know, I don't mind durian. I don't mind durian. I don't think why people is so obsessed with I durian. Like, I
0: don't can't stand durian.
1: I don't mind it. I really. I kind of, it doesn't bother me. Mm. But that tofu man in that <laughs> corner <laughs> in a LA, ladies' market, like, uh, that, I mean, I don't know. Well, in Europe, we have our cheeses. Of course. We have our cheese, Those which cheese. also stinks, but I maybe I'm used to it.
0: Is there any ingredient you used to hate as a child but now love?
1: Many. As a child, I was a very difficult eater. Mm. My grandmother says I survive thanks to milk. Because every day I will just keep drinking milk as another kid will drink water. I'll just go, and uh, I didn't like, if I would find a piece of onion anywhere, I couldn't eat that anymore. <laughs> like, for the classic pasta with tomato that all kids love, I love it until I find a piece of onion. Then I wouldn't touch it. I wouldn't like vegetable, nothing. I think onion is a good example. Mm. Now I couldn't do a proper stew or anything without onion. I would always start it with onion and garlic and olive oil and as
0: a kid i hated it so many many ingredients have you ever messed up a dish and do you remember what went wrong
1: i don't know if i should say this in a podcast but, um, madrid fusion very famous very famous um food um, i was saying before like a fair no um is in madrid normally and they did it in the philippines for a few years madrid fusion is organized by Capel. Capel is one of food critics in Spain. Um, we're talking about top, top, top mm. gastronomy people in Spain. Um, and then in that year, I think Jordi Roca from El Celler Can Roca was there, best pastry chef in the world. Um, who, who more was there? Mugaris. That was the year of Mugaris. And I was working already in the Philippines, and they asked us to do one dish with Philippine ingredients <laughs> for the reception. Of the on no, all those people. No? So um, we are different restaurants, and this was paid by the Filipino government. And then and then we were given corn. Philippines they have a lot of corn, so they told us, okay, make something with corn. And we say, okay. So we made kind of a cold cream of corn, but then we will add a lot of contrasts of Spanish ingredients. Like we will make a very thin crispy tool of chorizo. And then we'll put a slice of piparra, which is like a pickle, spicy pepper. And then we'll put one popcorn. And so you will have this cold cream working around with all these toppings. Mm. So we arrive to the convention. And and then I see the restaurant where I work was preparing it. The chef, super talented chef. I won't say his name, but very, very, very talented chef. Good friend of mine. And then he puts the corn on the table and I say... There is bubbles hmm. on the vacuum back, back. There are bubbles. No, no, no. Bubbles is fermentation. CO, so hmm. there are bubbles. No, no, no. Impossible. I call I blend it in cold. I tried the soup. And it was slightly sparkling. Slightly. We tried it, it was fine. It was just getting there, no? You know, Philippine is very on. People starts entering in the room. Hmm. Oh, if we, say we have to serve this. I mean, we have no fucking choice. Yeah. That. So we had their, I don't know, everyone there had the mission to star probably in that room or uh. was a food critic or whatever. So I say, well, whatever. So we, we just said, it wasn't bad to harm anybody, but you can fill this apartment. So yeah, yeah. We we put the glasses, we put the toppings, we serve it. We knew what happened. We knew what else yeah, a couple of people say, oh, it's very really nice. And it has this kind of, uh, mm. that, that, that spiciness. <laughs> and we, yeah, it's from the Piparra, or, you know, the, journey. And the fuck? I want this to finish soon. You know, like I'm a, everyone get out of here, let us go home. Uh, so I think that's the only time in my life I say, fuck, we fucked up. We uh, really fucked up. Uh, um, we didn't have anyone. one. I had a couple of those shots uh, <laughs> just to make sure. <laughs> I, and everything was fine, but it was very funny. And he actually, and actually, one of those Spanish food critics, he came to us and said, there is this spaghetti. And I say, yeah, yeah, no, must be. The piparra is a pepper that it's pickled and it's very spicy. And so it also gives you this perception on, on, mm. on your lips. But yeah, I'm sure someone knew. But look now, 20 years after that, or no, 10 years after that, look at Noma they're fermenting everything. So it's, like, uh,
0: it's joking. <laughs> What restaurant in Hong Kong do you wish everyone went to as their first introduction to the city? Just one.
1: Oh, um, this one is difficult because, of course, it needs to be a Hong Kong restaurant, and um, Hong Kong is very diverse. Finding one that represents everything—pick one—it's very difficult. <laughs> I'll say, I'll say, go to Mong Kok or Jordan and to those street restaurants that you know. It seems that they are full, but then they keep adding tables. <laughs> they're never full. <laughs> Every time they are 20 more people, no problem. They set five more tables coming from nowhere. Those ones and then have the, the crab omelette or the noodles mm. or the clay pots in Hong Kong. I think that mm.
0: that's,
1: that's what I will miss if I ever leave Hong Kong. That's the only thing in Hong Kong I think I would not be able to get anywhere else in the world. Makes sense.
0: What is your proudest moment in your life?
1: My daughter, probably. What mm. would
0: you be doing in life? Man, I don't know. I thought this sometimes.
1: Um, I don't know. Maybe writing.
0: What is your guilty pleasure snack to eat?
1: Uh, I eat, eat very simple. I, you know what I keep eating and I have to stop it? Chips, potato chips. I'm all the time eating potato But not fries, huh? Yeah. The ones from the back.
0: Yeah.
1: I arrive home after... I, the last thing I want to do is to cook. So usually I like to make, um, with a brioche or something, cheese sandwich. Just make a grilled cheese sandwich, butter. But then while I start preparing, I start with the chips. <laughs> then after I, fin- I I eat it with the chips, and after I have four or five more chips, it's completely <laughs> unhealthy. I really have to stop it. I tell my wife, please don't buy more chips, because the, the more you buy, the more I eat uh, chips. Why do you wake up in the morning? Well... Now, because my uh, daughter cries. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, yeah, that's a good question. I think I wake up because I need to go get what needs to be done. Um, Mm -hmm. But I still have the dream. Honestly, if you ask me, and I don't know if that's a mistake. I enjoy my day, but I still see my day as a step
0: to where I want to be. So where do you want to be in 10 years' time? That's my next question. Yeah,
1: I want to be more in Spain than in Hong Kong. Still in Hong Kong. But what I've been doing for the past 10 years of being in Spain two weeks a year, mm. this doesn't work for me anymore. So in 10 years, I like to know. In summer, I go one month. And then in Christmas, I go two
0: weeks nice. or, or another month. I like to relink to my culture. Yeah. What are you cooking up in the coming months that you can share with us on the podcast?
1: I can tell you that uh, in October,
0: because
1: in the past four years, I've been in Spain two weeks, COVID and everything, so I think I'm lacking inspiration. I'm still cooking what I eat at home, which has been the same. So now in September, I'm going to Spain for a month, three weeks, and I'm really going to eat a lot in the countryside, the places where I grow to see if I can reconnect with all that and get inspiration. So at this moment I don't have anything that I'm gonna cook right now. I I'm I'm willing to that trip to reinspire.
0: Nice. Yeah. Beautiful. How good. was that? Very good. I loved it. Yeah, that's that good. Great.
1: I speak too much man. You told me 1 minute but I it sorry. I did.
0: naughty naughty naughty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry. That was good. Cool.
2: Keep your finger on the pulse and tap follow to keep up with the Beat Asia to hear more colorful chats and rich stories. This episode is hosted by Ruben Barabez. A huge shout out to Edgar Sanoy for coming on the Delish guest list to share his story. Our producer for this episode is Marcus Treamer, and we are edited by myself, Natsuki Arita. That's all for this episode. See you in the next one.